everybody. Welcome into episode number 122 of the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name is Alex Dreamer. It's a pleasure to be with you as it is each and every Saturday here on June 25th as we wrap up Pride Month in style. New York City Pride going on this weekend. Those of you who are in the New York area, hopefully you had a chance to attend our great out sports event to kick off New York City Pride Weekend, as Sid Ziegler was there, our co-founder, Carly Webb, one of our great contributors was there, as well as several people from the Outsports and LGBTQ sports world, a storytelling event, great stories shared, Uh, so kicking off Pride Weekend in New York in style. As I tweeted out, I could not be there physically, but I was there in spirit, and hopefully those of you who uh, attended felt that. Uh, So yes, New York Pride happening now, as I mentioned, wrapping up Pride Month in style, then we... Look forward towards my favorite holiday of the year, the 4th of July. The weather is great. It's all about fun. It's all about sun. Nothing not to like. Uh, Unfortunately, there is a lot not to like about the news this week, beginning, of course, with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, I have a bit of a commentary on that at the end of the show about what that means. Uh, Well, obviously, it's disastrous for women, but it's also disastrous for LGBTQ people, because uh, we are next. Our rights are next on the chopping block. Clarence Thomas said as much in his uh, opinion on overturning Roe v. Wade. So very scary times indeed. And the war on trans women in sports uh, ratcheted up this past week as well. FINA, which is the international swimming governing body, has effectively banned trans women from competing in elite women's swimming. Um, FINA ruled this week that trans women who have experienced any part of puberty will no longer be eligible to compete in elite women's swimming on the international stage, as I mentioned. So this is a bombshell ruling from FINA, again, swimming's international governing body. Uh, FINA said in a statement, they created three working groups comprised of athletes, science and medicine, and legal and human rights to study the issue of trans inclusion in elite swimming. After analyzing the conclusions of these groups, FINA developed a new policy that will apply at all FINA events. The policy will also be followed for world record ratification wherever the competition took place. The new policy got overwhelming support from voting members, with 71.5% of them supporting this basically ban on trans women competing in elite international swimming. Uh, And I say that this is basically... A complete ban because there is only one path for trans women to compete in the female category. And that would be take puberty blockers before puberty starts. And this, of course, is <laughs> not a very uh, realistic scenario for the vast majority of trans women because this would mean that the athlete would A, have to figure out their trans before about the age of 13 when puberty starts. They would have to live in a place where puberty where puberty blockers are legal and get the necessary approvals, parental and medical, to take said blockers. So, I mean, this is not possible in some states here in the U.S., never mind in many countries across the world. So that's why I say this is basically an outright ban. yes. If you are a trans woman who did not undergo puberty, you could compete uh, under this policy, but that is just such a small percentage of trans women. Uh, This policy essentially kills any hope of trans women of competing in the female category at the Olympics. 
That applies to Leah Thomas. Earlier this month, she expressed an interest in making a run at Team USA for the 2024 Summer Games in Paris. Uh, Again, under this new policy, since she underwent puberty, uh, that will no longer be possible for her. Um, We are waiting to see how USA Swimming responds to this decision. Earlier this year, USA Swimming created a three-year transition mandate for trans women in the female category while it waited for FINA to weigh in on this topic. So as I mentioned, we'll see if FINA's new rule is adopted here for elite competition in the U.S. And look, I am not a transgender person, obviously. I have read a lot and reported a lot on trans issues over the last two and a half years since being here at Outsports, but I would not consider myself an expert because I don't have that lived experience as many trans people do. Uh, But I will say from my vantage point, the USA swimming policy, a three-year transition mandate for trans women in the female category seems much more well-reasoned and much more fair than this essentially, again, outright ban by FINA. Uh, because basically this is closing the debate as far as trans women competing in elite international swimming. It's saying that they can't. And I just can't fathom how an international sports governing body can make such a stringent ruling like this that leaves no wiggle room, uh, where the science is still far from settled. I mean, 71.5% of the voting members supported this policy, that tells me they did not have a broad enough range of perspectives on this. Uh, and it's 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 so ironclad. And, and, and again, it really leaves no wiggle room for any nuance. And this issue, as we've said time and time again on this show, requires a lot of nuance. Uh, you know, I do think that at elite levels, there should be transition mandates. There should be uh, period, there, there should be a period in place like USA Swimming had, the NCAA previously had one as well, and we can debate uh, how long the mandate should be and other things of that nature, but to say that if you are a trans woman who's undergone puberty, you cannot compete and, 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 and at, at an elite level in international swimming, again, that's an outright ban, and I just think that is far, not only is it bigoted, frankly, but it's it's far It's far too premature on this issue. It's settling an issue that is far from settled. So it was not a good week for trans rights in sports and uh, FINA just in just a horrible, horrible decision here and a cruel decision as well. Um, So we'll cover that story as the weeks progress. I'd love to get a guest on here to shed more light on that. Uh, I do want to quickly talk about something positive, something a little better for the LGBTQ community, and that would be Browns fullback Johnny Stanton. Now, last week on the show, I talked about the difference between being merely accepting of LGBTQ people and being supportive of LGBTQ people. And I talked about the examples of Chicago White Sox closer Liam Hendricks, who said in a recent interview that uh, Pride Night was a must for him when he was negotiating with teams in free agency. If a team he was negotiating with didn't have a pride night or didn't place LGBTQ rights as an organizational priority, he said, eh, I don't know if I can play for you all. And that is the difference between just accepting LGBTQ people and supporting LGBTQ people. And the same goes for former Red Sox all-star Kevin Euclid, who said in an interview with me that pride nights are great, but it's about what you do the other 364 days of the year. And my whole point is, 
if there were more Liam Hendricks and more Kevin Euclises out there, the environment could really change because there's so much fear when it comes to athletes coming out to their teammates. And we have the surveys on OutSports where the vast majority of athletes report near or total acceptance, uh, near total acceptance rather, from their teammates. We have those studies. We have the stories. Time and time again, we show that LGBTQ people are accepted in sports, team sports, individual sports, across all levels. But still, if you're a closeted athlete, and I'm especially talking about in male team sports, you can read all the out sports coming out stories. You can see all the surveys. But when you're in that locker room and you still hear casual homophobic slurs fly, it understandably makes you think twice about coming out and makes you fearful of coming out. If there were more Kevin Euclid's or more Liam Hendricks who outwardly support LGBTQ people and make that a personal priority of theirs, I think the environment would change. You like, for example, if you are Liam Hendricks's teammate, you know where he stands on gay rights. You don't have to guess. If you were Kevin Euclid's teammate, you knew where he stood on gay rights. You wouldn't have to guess. That makes it much easier to come out. The same goes for Johnny Stanton. Uh, he did an interview this week with a local news station in Cleveland about how he'll never stop being an ally to LGBTQ people. Uh, Stanton's passion stems from the experience of from the experiences of his uncle, Olympic hopeful Patrick Stanton, who did not feel comfortable coming out as gay until after his athletic career was over. And uh, his uncle's story motivates Stanton every day to make the locker room a more inclusive place. He said, quote, I don't want people to feel like they can't be their genuine selves, like they can't live truly with who they are and have to hide that from the people who they're closest with. I'm extremely close to my teammates. I can't imagine not being myself around them. Here, here, you know, like you can have superficial bonds with people if you're closeted and not sharing your true self. But how can you really have a true bond with someone if they don't know who you are. So that's a great point by Johnny Stanton. He spoke with Sid Ziegler for a story last week. He was only one of two NFL players, along with Carl Nassib, who supported an LGBTQ cause for My Cause, My Cleats this year. He said to Sid, no one should feel unwelcome on the field or the court. If just one person being an ally can help them feel more comfortable, then I'm happy to be that person. Here, here, as I said, Stanton in those comments personify the difference between offering LGBTQ people outward support opposed to mere acceptance. It's nice when athletes say they would accept a gay teammate, not treat them differently, but actively supporting LGBTQ people can actually change the landscape. So this Pride Month, it's an important message. Allies are very, very vital to our widespread support, to widespread uh, acceptance in society and in sports. And we need more Liam Hendricks, more Johnny Stanton's, more Kevin Euclid. So congrats to Johnny Stanton for taking a real strong stand. Uh, I'm also going to say here, congrats to NASCAR. Yeah, I don't say that often when it comes to NASCAR and LGBTQ rights and really recognizing minorities. I mean, remember, NASCAR... Uh, banned the Confederate flag from flying at racetracks just two years ago. <laughs> so they are a bit slow here to change their ways, uh, but they did it here. NASCAR, I think, has the best Pride Month campaign 
out of any major sports organization. Meet Yaskar. That's right. NASCAR has been Yasified into Yaskar. And the person behind that is Griffin Maxwell Brooks, who's a queer diver at Princeton. I've profiled Griffin before for Outsports. I spoke to him again this week about the Yaskar campaign. Basically, Griffin Maxwell Brooks, in addition to being an Ivy League diver, is a TikTok sensation. He has well over 1 million followers on the platform, and they wield the power of their popular account to yassify straight cultural cornerstones, such as Bass Pro Shop hats, Pit Viper sunglasses, uh, and judging by the ubiquity of Pit, Vi- uh, of Pit Viper sunglasses at a few circuit parties I may or may not have been to this summer, uh, um, I would say that Griffin's, uh, Griffin's mission is successful. So naturally, earlier this year when Griffin was recording these videos and thinking of brands to yassify, they thought of NASCAR, which of course has been historically an exclusionary place for LGBTQ people and other minority groups. So Griffin records a video earlier this year talking about the need to yassify NASCAR. Yaskar is what he came up with. It would be great for branding. They said in their viral video. And guess what? NASCAR listened. Right before Pride Month, Brooks received an email from an LGBTQ person working for NASCAR with some surprising news. Yaskar was a reality, and they wanted to give Brooks credit. And now we have rainbow-colored Yaskar shirts. And look, I spoke to Devin Rouse as well, who's an out auto racer in NASCAR. He, like many has a skeptical eye to all of these corporate pride campaigns. I think Devin had a great quote to me. I'll find it here. He said, uh, in terms of corporations that wrap themselves in pride colors every June, that's not how this works. What are you doing to help find a cure for AIDS? What are you doing to help this foundation for this? What they're getting away with is a very cheap marketing ploy. And he's right. But I think this NASCAR Yaskar campaign differs from that because, yes, while corporations may affiliate dollar signs with Pride Month, they also face backlash for publicly affirming LGBTQ people. We talked about that on last week's show with the disgusting pushback the Red Sox received from featuring drag queens during their Pride Night. And as one would expect, given NASCAR's fan base, the Yaskar campaign has encountered some brutal pushback online with homophobes wailing about wokeness and other silly Fox News buzzwords. But NASCAR, to its credit, is not bowing to the loudest bigots in the room. And I also think that this campaign is a bit different than the other cliche corporate pride campaigns we see out there because it was organic. You know, this was, again, Griffin Maxwell Brooks is a queer influencer on TikTok They came up with the idea, NASCAR found them, and now you have something organic and genuine. And this is how they pitched Yaskar merch on their TikTok account, okay? I'll read this to you. Vroom vroom gay, rev up those poppers, because this pride, I'm partnering with NASCAR to make these Yaskar shirts to help make motorsports a little more slay. That's pretty cool, huh? I mean, that's a little cooler than some Bank of America voiceover 
just saying, love is love. Don't you think? Yeah, I certainly think so too. So that's why this Yaskar campaign is different than the other pride campaigns we see across corporate America. That's why I don't just roll my eyes at it. I think it's genuine. I applaud NASCAR for continuing with it and continuing to push it despite the backlash they've received from some of their hardcore fans. That's cool. That's pretty cool. So I do want to give NASCAR a shout for yassifying itself and doing it in a cool and organic fashion. You don't always see that this time of year as we know. All right, lastly here, as I said to start off the pod today, I do want to briefly address the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade by a 6-3 to three margin. Uh, <laughs> from Chief Justice Roberts to, to uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, they all said in their confirmation hearings that they considered Roe to be precedent. They considered it to be settled Law, uh, yep, they were all liars. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And this is something that the right-wing movement has been working towards ever since uh, abortion was legalized federally in the U.S. It's been going on for decades. This has been the prime thing that's been driving so many of their actions from the from their emphasis on justices to Mitch McConnell blocking Obama from appointing a Supreme Court justice in his final year in office. Go on down the line. This is what they've been working towards, and it's a one-two punch. On Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that concealed carry laws are not constitutional. Several states, including the one in which I live, Massachusetts, require gun owners to have a permit to carry guns in public places outside of their home. Uh, Supreme Court on Thursday said, nope, that's unconstitutional. And then on Friday, the Supreme Court says that, uh, yes, well, it's also unconstitutional to federally legalize abortion. So this is a country where guns have more rights than women. That's just fabulous. And it's so dystopian. It's so draconian. This is minority rule. Uh, Five of the six justices who voted in favor of of overturning Roe, were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Roberts, Alito, George W. Bush, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, Donald Trump. So this is what minority rule looks like. And the Democrats have just been sitting on their hands and they've been using Roe as a fundraising tool instead of fighting for the last 50 years to codify it into law. And now it's coming back to bite them. And James Clyburn, who's the number three Democrat in the House from South Carolina, said Friday that he finds this ruling anticlimactic because we all knew it was going to come due to the leaked document a few months ago. So that's where Democratic leadership stands on this issue. They call it anticlimactic that millions of women are having their rights stripped away before our very eyes. And that just speaks to the huge disconnect between Democratic leadership and what people are feeling and experiencing on the ground. And, you know, DC, you know, just look at what the Republicans would do if they were in this position. 
You know, D.C. would be ratified as a state by now, as would Puerto Rico. Supreme Court would probably be expanded as well if a Democrat, uh, if Democrats who lost the popular vote appointed, you know, five Supreme Court justices, five of the nine more. I mean, so it's just it's it's the Republicans play one game and the Democrats are tepid. They play another game and they lose time and time again. They have control of the White House, control of the Senate, control of the House, and yet they can't really get anything passed. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's hard to garner a lot of hope. And Nancy Pelosi stands up there Friday and says, Abor-, you know, abortion rights are on the ballot in November. I- I'm sorry, Nancy, but no, no, abortion rights were on the ballot two presidential cycles ago in 2016. Maybe if Democrats somehow maintain control of Congress, which I doubt, but maybe, maybe they can devise some sort of legislation that lessens the blow of this ruling. But this is talk about an ironclad ruling with FINA banning trans swimmers who have undergone puberty. This is an ironclad ruling. This is overturning Roe. And this is now the law of the land. And it's going to take a lot of work not just voting and making your voice heard, but actually the people in power, the people who we vote for, it's now up to them. And I'm just so sick of that rallying cry. Make your voices heard. Stand up and vote. You know, get out there. We voted for a Democrat president. We voted for Democrats to control the Senate. The people voted for Democrats to control the House of Representatives. We voted you in already. Do your job which they haven't done. So where do we go next? It just gets bleaker. This is what Clarence Thomas, who, by the way, was credibly accused of sexual harassment in his confirmation hearings by Anita Hill and his wife, Ginny Thomas, was an active participant in the coup to overthrow this democracy on January 6th. This is what he writes in his opinion with Roe overturned. We should reconsider all of this court's substantive due rights precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. What are those cases? Well, Griswold, 1967, was the right to contraception. Lawrence, 2003, legalized same-sex relations nationwide. And Obergefell, of course, in 2015, legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. So Clarence Thomas says it right there. They're not going to stop at Roe. They're coming for contraception. They're coming for same-sex marriage. They're even coming for same-sex relations. They will not rest until we are an entirely militarized society where everybody is brandishing a gun wherever they want, where women can't get abortions, where LGBTQ people can't be open about their relationships, never mind be married. That's what they want. That's what they've wanted. These theocrats. That's what they are. Theocrats. This is what they've always wanted. I do think it's interesting that Clarence Thomas, who's in an interracial marriage, did not include Loving v. Virginia in his opinion, that of course legalized interracial marriage because, oh, that's the other thing. 
with a lot of these hard right wingers. They only have sympathy for causes if it directly affects them. You know, there's a reason why Nancy Reagan was pro-stem cell research. There's a reason why a hard right senator like Rob Portman is pro-same-sex marriage. Uh, He had a gay kid. Nancy Reagan, Ronald, of course, uh, suffered from Alzheimer's later in life. I mean, go on down the line, you know, that if it personally affects them, yeah, sure, we're cool with that. But the others, to hell with them. And that's what this is. They will not rest, again, until guns have more rights in this country than women and LGBTQ people. And they're not going to stop at this because when have they ever stopped? When have they ever been moderate? When have they ever tempered the most hardcore wings of their ideology? They've never done it. They're going to keep on going. And it may not even stop there. Basically, the whole plan here is to repeal, never mind the 21st century, but the 20th century. That's the plan of these six justices who rule the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think we have to reconsider what freedom here in America looks like. (sighs) So I had to get that off my chest. It's on the top of my mind here this weekend, as I'm sure it is for all of you out there as well. So thank you for listening to episode number 122 of the Sports Kiki podcast. As always, if you have any show ideas, topic ideas, guest ideas, shoot me a DM on Twitter, at AlexStreamer1 is my username. That again is at AlexStreamer1. So long, and we'll talk to you next Saturday, July 2nd, 4th of July weekend.